Good morning. My name is Christy, and I have the privilege of serving as a leader in the Fall Women's Bible Study, and my husband and I lead a community group. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 1, 1 through 11, from the NIV. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Thank you, Christy. Philippians is our field guide to joy this fall. And as we work through this letter, we discover what it means to have joy in all kinds of different areas of life. And this morning, we come to the very important topic of finding joy in our relationships with one another. So let's pray together and let's ask that God would open our hearts as we open his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you created us for relationship. And you've made a way for us to have a relationship with you and also to have a relationship with one another. We confess this morning that the thought of community, especially in the church, is very mixed. And many of us carry wounds from the past or even the present. And we invite you to come and bring healing, to give us fresh vision for what community can look like in spite of the hardships and difficulties. And I pray that you would make it so clear where we get this power from. And I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you or who's joining us online, who's never trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that today they would hear, understand, and believe and experience relationship with you through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Christian pastor in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, advanced the idea that Christian community is one of the best advertisements 
for the Christian faith. The idea that all the followers of Jesus living transformed lives together in their cities and towns and villages is one of the most compelling evidences to the watching world that the Christian faith is true. It is also well known that before his life was taken by the Nazi regime in 1945, he spoke a lot about this and even wrote a book that is now famous. It's called Life Together. It's actually been such a helpful book that it's been read throughout the world. What is less known, however, is that there was a time when Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually left his German community in favor of a quiet position in London. And it actually took a letter of correction from one of his friends to bring him back. And his friend was named Karl Barth, who's known as a theologian. But listen to these spicy words as a friend. He says, I truly cannot do otherwise than to call you. Get back to your post in Berlin straight away, Dietrich. What is this about you going into the wilderness and keeping quiet at the moment when you are needed in Germany? You who know as well as I do that the church is on such shaky ground spiritually and that every honest man should have his hands full with making it sharp and clear and solid. In other words, the guy who wrote Life Together bailed on Life Together and he needed a friend to bring him back in. The one who wrote so powerfully on Christian community faced a time that he needed to be reminded of it. See, I share that because the, one of the reasons the Apostle Paul wrote the letter before us this morning, his letter to the Philippian church, is because in the midst of their many trials and adversity, rather than tightening their bonds with each other, they were allowing their community to fragment through self-centeredness and selfishness. The Philippian church, as we will learn, had many areas of health. But one great area of need was in this area of community. So he is, he is writing to them to remind them and encourage them of what they have in their shared life together in Christ. And friends, if we're honest this morning, we need this. Many of us understand the importance of community, and yet we struggle to find it, or we struggle to remain within it. So when it comes to the topic of relationships, especially within the church, we tend towards two extremes. Some of us are really helpful, and some of us are really cynical. Some of you, you might be new to Reality Ventura, maybe new to the Christian faith, and you're like, oh, I'm so excited. It's September community groups. And when it was advertised, you might have elbowed somebody next to you. You're like, relationships. And others of you are like, yeah, been there. Been there, done that. What did it get me? Scars. <laughs> Never again. So when you hear all this about community, you might even roll your eyes because you keep people at arm's length within the church. For many of us, we go in cycles. Sometimes we're hopeful, sometimes we're cynical. Sometimes we're passionate about it, other times we're passive about it. Sometimes we just want to give up. Or maybe other people have given up on us. People have wounded us, talked behind our back, stabbed us in the back, disappointed us, 
whatever it might be in the church, some of us might say, I'm done. But whether you're hopeful or whether you're in a difficult place when it comes to relationships in the church, we need to be reminded of the power of Christian community. And in many ways, that's what the Apostle Paul does here in verses 3 through 11. He calls us not only to believe something about community, but actually to live in community. And that it is not only good and right to do so, it is connected to your joy. It is connected to my joy. The section before us has often been called a prayer, but that is not quite correct. It's actually a report of the things Paul says in his prayers, which shows us what he believes about these people, what he thinks about these people, what he hopes for these people. And his emphasis actually lays out practically how you and I can enjoy joy together as a community, even when the odds are against us, even when people have failed us, even when it is hard to do so. So this morning is going to be very practical. We have six steps, six steps to experiencing joy in life together, experiencing joy as a community. Six steps from these verses, which if we heed, you will experience the joy of a shared life that can flourish anywhere and endure anything. And the first step is this. You want to experience joy in community? Well, number one, you need to practice gratitude. Practice gratitude together. Notice when Paul begins, as he thinks of these men and women in the church at Philippi, it begins with thanksgiving. He says in verses 3 and 4, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. This is such an important point that we practice gratitude together. Because in our day and age, we have more privileges than any era of, of history, and yet it feels like it's never been more difficult to be grateful. It's like, think about the things we complain about, and I'll, I'll be the first to hold my hand up. It's like, the other week, I, I flew back uh, with, with my brother from a trip to, to Illinois, and the Wi-Fi wasn't working on the plane, and I was absolutely dismayed. But when you stop to think about it, like, wait a minute, Tim, you flew in like an aluminum tube 30,000 feet in the sky like a bird. And I'm like, how come the Wi-Fi doesn't work? What kind of, you call this an airline? Where's my Wi-Fi? I didn't get my free peanuts. I only got one refreshment, not two. It's insane. It was like, I flew in the air. And yet, what do I do? I complain. How come the Wi-Fi doesn't work? See, never has it been more difficult to be grateful. And yet I would say never has it been more necessary for us to be grateful, especially when it comes to people. But for many of us, that's hard to do. There's this category of jokes in England called two-word horror stories. It was like a whole long list. It's hilarious. Two words that when you hear these two words, it strikes fear into your heart. Sharing platter. 
Some of you are like, oh. <laughs> Tomorrow's Monday. Oh. But my favorite and the number one two-word horror story in Britain, they're here. <laughs> it's that feeling you get when at church you like invited people over, you heard a sermon on Christian community, and you're like, honey, let's just invite someone from church over. Oh, they seem nice. We met them during the meet and greet. Yeah, totally come over on Thursday. But as the week goes by, you're dreading it, and Thursday morning you're like, oh my gosh, you know got to go to the store and what are we going to make? And then Thursday evening rolls around and they ring the doorbell and your spouse is like, they're here. Like, what have we done? Maybe we talk about community groups and you're like, sure, I'll host one in a moment of conviction. And later on, they all get there and you're like, they're here. And yet what does Paul do? Paul begins with this glorious expression of gratitude. And it is so important that we do the same within the church. Oftentimes, it's easy to look around and instead of being grateful, we're entitled. We look around at people in the church and think, I deserve better. You might have joined a group recently or an activity in the church where your expectations were pretty high and you showed up and you're like, really? This is what I get? Is there like different tiers that I can join? Because I consider myself a tier one. Or maybe, I just want more people like me. I want them to like the things that I like, do the things that I do. I want them to be relatively close in the same age category. I would like them to have the same amount of children as I do, and I would like for them to, to enjoy the same hobbies and the weather. That would be great. To which I often respond, hey, we don't run eHarmony here at the church for a community, okay? It's very easy for entitlement to creep into our hearts. In fact, the opposite of gratitude is entitlement. And if there's one thing that will kill community, it is ingratitude and entitlement. And we might even say, wait a minute, I, I've got a lot of reasons to complain. You don't know what other people have done to me in the church. You don't know my history. And I don't want to minimize the pain or the wounds you've experienced in the past. But I do look at someone like the Apostle Paul, and if there was ever someone who had a right to complain, Paul was it. In fact, at the time of this writing, Paul experienced a lot of difficulty and pain, and yet he begins by saying, I thank my God every time I remember you. See, one of the ways in which we can experience joy, even in the midst of difficulty, is by being thankful for other people by praying prayers of gratitude for them. Remember, Paul is in prison at the time of this writing, imprisoned unjustly for preaching the gospel. And he writes this letter and he begins with gratitude. Because what happens when you trust in Jesus? It frees you from this radical self-centeredness and it enables us to embrace other people and to be grateful for them. And notice, he, he's not only grateful for them, he says, every time I remember you, it is with joy. His prayers are not merely focused on dealing with some problems in the church. See, some of us might say, oh, I pray for other people in Reality Ventura. I pray often. But it's not because I'm thankful for them. <laughs> but he says, when I pray for you, the first thing that comes to mind is joy. I'm grateful for them. Listen, joy, as we will learn in this book, is not the absence of trouble. 
It's the presence of a relationship that is greater than your troubles. That's what Paul was experiencing in jail. I'll say it again. Joy is not the absence of trouble. Joy is the presence of a relationship that is greater than your troubles. And so there's Paul. He's in jail. And he's like, I have a relationship with God. And I have a relationship with all these other men and women because of our mutual faith in God. Therefore, I have a reason to rejoice. All may not be well in the world. All may not be well in your life. But you can know that all is well in your relationship with God. And that changes everything about how you relate to other people. Notice Paul says, I'm thankful for all of you. He doesn't say some of you. See, those of us are like, yeah, I'm thankful for like three people at Reality Ventura. <laughs> and they're all in my family. So it just makes it simple. <laughs> but we need to change our some to all. See, gratitude comes from remembering that we were first saved and remembering that other people were saved by grace. See, think about Paul. If you know the background to the book of Philippians, he would call to mind when he first got to this region of Macedonia where Philippi was. And at the time when he first arrived, there were no Christians there. But miraculously, through the preaching of the gospel, People were saved and a community was formed. He found other Christians and he was overjoyed by it. I highly doubt that Paul was like, but do you like to hike? Oh, you don't? Oh, well, my joy just kind of diminished. Like, no, he's like, are you a believer in Christ? I'll take it, community. I love this because I was recalling when I first became a Christian and I went to this, this Bible study that I'd heard about and nobody in the room at that Bible study was remotely close to my age. They were all 20 plus years older than me. But in that moment, I literally didn't care because a few weeks prior, I was on my way to hell apart from God and I had heard the gospel and I was saved. I was born again and I was in a room with other people. And I was like, I don't care if we like the same music or the same age. You are a believer in Christ. I just got saved. We're family. Let's study the Bible together. It was simple. And it reminds me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, that he wrote when he was forbidden to write by Hitler's Nazi regime. Very difficult time to live out your faith. And you know what he says? He says, therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace and nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with other Christian brethren. In other words, when you're feeling like it's a struggle with relationships in the church, and maybe the people around you or the people in your group or the people in this church aren't the people that you normally would have picked, get down on your knees and thank God from the bottom of your heart that you even know another Christian. You were saved by grace. They are saved by grace. Therefore, grace is the foundation for your gratitude. And this gratitude can hold us together. It serves as the joy, which leads to the second step. If you want to experience joy in community, you need to practice gratitude. And secondly, make commitments. Make commitments together. Paul continues on in verse 5 by saying, hey, I pray for you, I'm thankful for you, I have joy over you because of your partnership. That's the key word. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
See, these men and women in Philippi, they had supported Paul over the years, both relationally and practically. And so he's thanking God that that they rolled up their sleeves and got involved in his life. They even sent him financial assistance, and they even sent him a friend. Now, some translations use the word fellowship there. And I suppose the word fellowship has lost a lot of its meaning in modern-day Christianity. When we use the word fellowship, we often think it's like the time of social eating together. You know, as a church, like if there's coffee and deep-fried goods, like that's fellowship. You know, like, hey, when is the fellowship going to happen? Like, i.e., where is the food where we're all going to socialize? Now, that would be a very surface level. But listen. If that's all the word fellowship meant, then the Lord of the Rings and Fellowship of the Rings would have been a completely different book. Any nerds in the room? Are you with me? Raise your hand. Thank you. If that's all fellowship meant, then the whole trilogy just would have been about some dwarves and elves having tea together and having a good time. Wouldn't have been an epic saga of sacrifice. I'm not going to get into Lord of the Rings. Fellowship, partnership, speaks of a bond together, a shared investment together. It's such a substantial word. In fact, oftentimes when you read in ancient culture about people starting a fishing business, these partners would get together, they'd buy a boat, and they'd get in the boat together, and they'd do the work of fishing together without fear of one of them jumping out of the boat because they both invested in this boat together. They were in it together. Friends, that's what we're called to. We're called to make commitments in the church because it truly is a partnership. We're in a partnership together. Like, hey man, when the going gets tough, I'm not going to jump ship at the first sign of difficulty in the church. See, the opposite of a fellowship relationship or a partnership is a consumer relationship where you come and go as you like like a transaction at your local shop, and your commitment is essentially based on whether or not you get your goods and services. If it's bad or if it's difficult, you just switch providers. How often does this play out in the church? I tried it for two weeks, but, you know, they didn't really, it it didn't really meet my needs, and this other church is offering the new iPhone 14 and, like, midnight blue, and so I'm going to switch providers, (laughs) and I'm going to find community there. It's like, are you kidding me? Friends, this is war. Like, we live in a dark world. The world needs the gospel. We're in this together. And though it's nice when we have friends that are built on likes and and, and shared interests, and that's great, but Christian community is broader than just your friendship. It's a partnership as a family together in the gospel. And when you invest in it, guess what? You discover joy. I know it might be intimidating on the front end, but you receive joy on the back end. You're like, yeah, we're in this together. What was that commitment like, that partnership like? They sacrificed for one another. It was consistent through thick and thin. When Paul was in chains, they still supported him. They didn't wait to to see if Paul turned out to be a winner before they got behind him. They invested If we want to experience joy in community, we need to practice gratitude. Remember that our salvation and everyone else's salvation in the church is based on grace. Therefore, I always have a reason to thank God. 
We need to practice commitments. We need to make commitments together. You're like, okay, I get it, but how do I make such commitments? Well, that's the third step. We need to trust God together. If you want to experience joy in relationships in the church, joy in community, we need to trust God together. For it is this shared trust in the good news about Jesus that serves as the reason Paul is able to enter such a partnership and give thanks for these men and women. And we note the trust in God in verse 6. Paul says, being confident of this. He says, this is where my confidence is. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Listen, friends, this is huge. Paul deliberately reminds them that his confidence has very little to do with them, and it has everything to do with God. He's saying, I'm not joining up with these men and women in the church on the sheer basis that I'm confident that their own ability or their own spirituality is what's going to bring us to the finish line. He says, no. My confidence comes from God and his ability to finish what he started. And in using this phrase, he's actually reminding them and us of joy over their past salvation, coming into a relationship with God, but now he gives them assurance about their future. Hey guys, you remember God began that work in you when I preached the gospel and you got saved? Let me tell you right now, he's going to finish it because God finishes what he starts, which is an incredible word for us when we feel like we want to give up. And this is especially important in Christian community because look around the room. We are not the finished article. <laughs> we are not there. Some of you are like, I'm pretty close. Well, ask your spouse. <laughs> we have not yet arrived. This is going to require patience. So when you look at other people, you could say, hey, we're not there yet. But I know God began a work. And because God began a work, I know and I have confidence that he will finish it. So what is that good work that God began? When God opened up their hearts and they believed. And that good work that he began, he will complete. The work of transforming dead hearts into lives that radiate the truth of the gospel. See, salvation, according to Christianity, is not a matter of us working for God, but God working in us. He is always the initiator. He's the sustainer. And he is the finisher of this work from beginning to end. We are called to respond to that work. So a paraphrase would be this. Since God is at work in you from beginning to end, don't be complacent. Keep on trusting together. Make commitments together. Keep on in this partnership because God is committed to us. Because after all, what has God started that he doesn't finish? Look at his track record. It's perfect. So that even when we fail or other people in the church fail, you can still have hope. We can fail one another and say, true, I have failed. I, I confess that. But my place with God is secured by Christ so I can continue on. Practice gratitude. Make commitments. Trust God together. And knowing that God is at work leads to this fourth step. Pray together. 
If you want to experience joy in Christian community, then we must always pray together. Do you pray for other people in the church? Do you pray for other people in the groups that you belong to? And there's a second question. If so, what do you pray? Because <laughs> notice what Paul says here in verse 7 and 8. He says, I have you in my heart. It is right for me, verse 7, to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Some of us might say, oh, I pray for you because I have you on my nerves. But he says, since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. What moved Paul's continual prayers? He says, I have you in my heart. It was a commitment to praying for them. That word affection speaks of a strong longing for their well-being. And I want you to notice that prayer is so key because prayer does not promote inactivity. Prayer promotes right activity. And prayer is something that we are to continually participate in together. Now, I love this because the Philippians had some areas of need, areas in their community life that needed addressing. But Paul models for us what a mature person does when he's faced with those who need to mature. He doesn't move farther from them. He moves closer towards them. In fact, he says, I always think about you. I have you in my heart. I pray for you. Here's why I bring that up. I've noticed over the years in various churches, there's this tendency among some people who feel that when they're really growing and maturing, they pull away from other people that they deem immature. They'll say, well, I have such a hunger for the Word of God, I just can't hang out with these immature people who don't hunger the way that I do. And so I will withdraw. Oh, I just, I pray six hours a day, so I just can't Imagine being around these other people who don't share my hunger for prayer. There are people who often complain like, well, you know, I like the church, but there's just so much immaturity. I'm like, oh, so you're a bastion of maturity? Is that what I'm to take from this conversation? But listen, true Christian maturity will not result in you drawing away from people, but moving towards people. Even if they're immature, you should not look down and complain and be disgusted and move yourself away. Rather, you should say, I'm going to move towards them because I want them to hunger for the Word of God. I want them to learn how to pray. How are they going to follow another example if they don't see yours? Brother or sister, if that is you and you see immaturity in parts of this church, do not allow that observation to move you away from them, but rather move you closer towards them. Paul didn't say, I'm so mature that I'm cool in prison without you guys. No, he's like, I'm concerned about you. I love you. I want to move towards you. I want to share in the same hunger in the word of God. And if there's things I can teach you, then I will gladly do so. That is Christian maturity. So instead of complaining, which I'll be the first to do, try praying instead. How easy is it to complain about others in the church when there's problems? There's been times where I'm like, oh, I can't believe that person. And, you know, oh, this, that, and the other. And one of my pastor friends back in LA used to always say this to me. It was so convicting. I hated it. 
I'd be like, oh, that person's so annoying. I can't believe this, that, and the other. And he's like, I'm sure you're praying for him, right? I was like, huh, what? Huh, what? Um, sure, no, yes, maybe, I don't know. What is prayer? Like, define prayer. <laughs> Instead of complaining, try praying. How often and how easy it is to express our frustration rather than be moved by Christ to have affection for them and to pray for them. So important is this and so powerless are we to do this on our own that we must pray. But when we pray, what do we pray for? Well, life together means, number five, the fifth step, we must emphasize love. That's what Paul prays for. If you want to experience joy in relationships in the church and Christian community, we have to emphasize Christian love together. That's what he prays for. This community was well known for its generosity and its sacrifice and patience and affection. It was a community known for its love. But notice, Paul doesn't settle. He doesn't say, you've arrived. You guys got it. You're good. Instead, verse 9 and 10. And this is my prayer, he says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He doesn't just say, hey, you guys have already shown love, so you're good. Just stay where you are, at ease. He doesn't say that. He says, I pray that you would abound more and more in love. We must emphasize, highlight, and underline the importance of showing sacrificial Christ-like love within the church. And connected to that, he says knowledge. Now, this isn't just some generic reference to knowledge. He's not just saying, hey guys, be sure you remember the periodic table together. That's not what he's saying. He's saying knowledge of God, the discernment of, of how to show love, that we would grow in knowing God's word and grow in living according to God's ways. And related to that, he prays that they would be pure and blameless. Now this requires clarification because to be blameless does not mean that we will never make mistakes or that we will never sin. But that when we sin, we are quick to confess. When we fail, when we falter, we are quick to confess. See, sin is, is never purely a personal matter. And therefore, confessing sin is never merely a private matter. Because listen, when unconfessed sin is undealt with, it not only drives a person farther from God, it drives a person farther from Christian community. If you begin to live in the dark in your relationship with God, it won't be long before you start living in the dark in the way you relate with other people. If you're wearing the mask before God, it won't be long before you're wearing the mask in front of other people. There may be many reasons represented in this room why we've held Christian community at arm's length. But one of them might be unconfessed sin. We don't want to deal with having to like deal with that and like confess our sin and really deal with it. And so we avoid Christian community. 
But friend, if that's you, take this as a warning because there's always a deeper issue. It means you're hiding from God. And he calls you to confess your sin knowing that he will forgive you of all of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And be quick to do it. Today is a reminder and a call for you to do that. And here's the thing. When we confess our sin through confession, sin loses its power to divide us. When we confess our sin, sin loses its power to fragment us as a church. But you might say, well, that might be a reason. But the other reason is these people are so difficult. Like, have you seen the other people around even dirt? Are you kidding me? Like, this is not an easy job. But when it comes to love, when it comes to Christian love, notice Paul's language here. He has a further future end in mind. When he's looking at these men and women, he's not only looking at them through the lens of the present, he's looking at them through the lens of the future. He says, until the day of Christ, the one day that God will make all things new. That's the end that he has in mind, and it fuels how he relates to people in the present. Think about what this means, friends. When we look at each other, we would not only look at one another with the present in mind, but with their future in mind. That one day, they're going to be in glory with Jesus Christ if their faith is in him. And so our job now is to help one another get there. Or to use a phrase I love, we are helping one another to become our future glory selves. Think about that. Your job in this church, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to help one another become our future glory selves. Hey, let me help you become your future glory self. Join a community group. Hey, let me help you become your future glory self by praying for you. We need to look at other people and say, man, even this person who is the most frustrating person, in fact, think right now, exercise. Think of the most frustrating person in Reality Ventura right now and do not say it out loud because that's not wise, right? Just think of that person. You're like, oh, shudder. If that person is a believer, though they frustrate you to no end, though there may be some unresolved relational tension there, know this. One day, that person will be closer to you in heaven than the nearest human you have on earth now. And you will be glorying in the presence of Jesus together and worshiping for eternity. Keep that day in mind when you reach out to them today with a call or a text. We are helping one another become our future glory selves. We're heading in the same eternal direction. Knowing this changes everything about how I relate to other people. See, Paul knew what it was like to be abandoned. Paul knew what it was like to be betrayed. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't happen. In fact, how does he respond? To these people who were trying to make his life miserable at the time of this writing, people who claimed the name of Jesus but were out to get him, this is what he says in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. 
You might think, well, how do I get there? How do we get there as a church? How could Paul not hold the failure of people against them? And the answer, friends, is the same reason that our failures are not held against us by God. And that reason is Jesus Christ. And so, if you want to experience joy in community, the last step and the most important step is this. Make Jesus the center of everything. If we're going to experience joy in Christian community, make Jesus the center of everything. Jesus is the Son of God who came into our world, who was betrayed. We all sinned against Him. His own followers turned against Him and betrayed Him. And what did Jesus do? He died on a cross in their place and in our place as a payment for sin so that we could be forgiven. He rose again on the third day to give us new life and no longer holds our sins against us. And friends, that is the reason why we do not hold sins against one another. So notice Paul, when he closes this section, he identifies the source. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Where does it come from? Where does the gratitude and the commitment and the praying and the trusting and all this other stuff, where does it come from? Through Jesus Christ. The gospel says that if you believe in Jesus, you become aware of how great your sin is, that you are spiritually dead apart from him. But by believing in him through faith in Jesus who died for you, we are raised to new life. And all the barriers that would normally keep us from one another are overcome through our common connection in Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, Christ's devotion to you should drive your devotion to one another. If you're asking the question this morning, why should I get involved? Why should I commit to these people? Because Christ is committed to you. Why should I rejoice over them? Because Christ rejoices over you. Why should I stand in the gap for them? Because Jesus stood in the gap for you. His devotion to you is what drives your devotion to one another. That means this morning, if you're not sharing your life with others, then maybe you've forgotten the beauty of the gospel today. Maybe you've forgotten all that Jesus, your truest friend, has done for you. Or maybe you've never received the gospel. You've never experienced that relationship with God. This morning is an invitation for you to believe, to say, Jesus, save me. Save me, Jesus. There is salvation in no other name. And the relationship I need is a relationship with you. I believe what you did on the cross for me. I believe that you rose again. I'm putting my trust in you. Experience that relationship with Jesus today. And it will change everything about how you relate to others. God wants to begin that new work in you. And if you are a believer, God has begun that work in you. Respond. Show off his love to others. The abandonment, the failure, the opposition, the unmet expectations, they will not have the last word. For no matter who gives up on you, Jesus Christ will never give up on you. I know of no greater strength for a shared life together 
He is the source. And so we can rejoice. Amen? Let's pray together and posture our hearts to respond to this truth as he wants to bring healing. Healing in our relationship with him where sin needs to be confessed and where we need to draw near or perhaps healing in our relationships with each other. Father, we thank you that we are not left to our own devices, our own strength, or our own power to build, form, and invest in relationships in the church. Rather, it is based on your power. It is based on your strength. It is based on your ability. It is based on the finished work of Jesus for us. So, Father, we want to respond this morning. We want to respond to you, our truest friend, our Savior friend. You laid down your life for us when we were still sinning against you, and I pray that that would melt our hearts today. And that we would remember that as we take communion and confess our sin and turn to you and receive from you. God, I pray that we would remember this morning your devotion to us. And I also pray that you'd bring healing in our relationships with others. I know there are many in this room who've had their hearts broken in the church. There's real wounds there. But they are wounds that you died and rose again to heal. And so I pray that we would not run from you, but towards you and experience healing this morning. Relational healing. Do that work. Holy Spirit, would you move? In Jesus' name, amen.